welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom and the hashtag, the virtual shift. Today, we have three special guests from Foley and Lautner uh, Law Firm. And uh, those folks are uh, TJ Ferrante, Rachel Goodman, and Nathaniel Lackman. Welcome to the program, folks. Thanks, Thanks for having us here, Tom. Awesome. I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Today, we're going to be talking about the proposed 2023 physician fee schedule most specifically as it relates to remote therapeutic monitoring. There's some been uh, or some interesting proposals made on that particular front. TJ, Rachel, and Nathaniel uh, wrote an interesting article, uh, which they will reference uh, later as to where that source is. So let's just jump into it. Nathaniel, I'll, I'll lead it off with you. Tell me a little, just give me a summary of what CMS proposed as far as uh, rule changes in the RTM arena? Sure. CMS proposed changing some of the RTM billing codes uh, this upcoming year in order to better account for the various clinician or practitioner types who want to use these services. Although RTM codes pre-existed uh, this year, AMA created them, they were pretty narrowly tailored and put under a specific category of uh, coding services called general medicine codes. Although that was well-intended with the idea of allowing physical therapists and some other non-physician practitioners to bill these types of remote monitoring services, it had the net effect of eliminating the ability to leverage under what's known as general supervision, uh, because by and large, general medicine codes cannot be billed incident to. So when the industry provided feedback on that, uh, CMA said, all right, we are going to create our own new codes. Uh, And so they proposed a set of four codes two pairs of codes to replace the pre-existing single pair of professional services codes. So the first pair is focused on uh, those types of doctors and QHPs who can bill E&M services. And then the second is focused on those types of practitioners who cannot. Interesting. DJ, a lot of folks obviously know remote physiological monitoring, RPM, right? That's the use of a medical device to capture a particular uh, physiological measure, one or more measures, in relationship to a chronic condition that they may they may have. So, remote therapeutic monitoring is what? Which kind of jumped ahead here, but let me take one step back. Can you define what remote therapeutic monitoring is? Sure, uh, and I'll even take a step further back. That you know, when remote physiologic monitoring came out, it was. Uh, really well received, I think, by the industry because, you know, prior to that, you know, telehealth was beginning to gain some traction. This was all, again, well before uh, uh, COVID, you know, really 2016 and 17 time period. And remote physiologic monitoring was released and uh, expanded from there and became and, and, and began to have some um, use and traction. And, uh, and it was really helpful for patients that uh, were in need of those types of services. However, you know, because these this concept is fairly new and because the separate reimbursement was fairly new, there was a lot of uh, industry stakeholder uh, feedback about, you know, some of the clunkiness of this codes. One of the biggest complaints that was voiced in the industry was, you know, remote 
physiologic monitoring, there's a lot of things that are not physiological that that our patients really want to be moderate, like monitored. Uh, and indeed, the RPM codes required also that there would be automatic device uh, data transmissions. And, and, and there's a lot of times where there could be self-reported data. RPM doesn't capture either of those two concepts. So that's where, you know, enter remote therapeutic monitoring, which is CMS's response to, I think, the industry pressure and requests to have, you know, a, a type of code that is not limited to, to physiologic data collection. It can be self-reported by the patient, and it's also not restricted to, to use by, as Nate mentioned, not uh, physicians or qualified healthcare practitioners. So non-physician practitioners like uh, clinical psychologists, like most importantly, probably therapists, physical therapists, et cetera, can take advantage of these codes and provide their services, you know, using this remote therapeutic construct to patients that need it. Very interesting. So, uh, Rachel, uh, one of the first questions that folks are probably uh, wondering is, can you tell me what more about RTM, but can I bill it simultaneously with RPM? On one side, I'm going to measure physiological measures, and the other side, I'm going to measure drug adherence, drug uh, compliance. Absolutely. So in kind of in similar vein to the fact that not more than one provider can be providing and billing for RPM for the same patient at the same time. Um, at this point in time, so far, CMS is also restricting the ability for both RPM and RTM services to be provided for the same patient at the same time, even if it's by different providers. And so an important kind of part of a workflow as providers start to implement this is actually asking that question as, are you currently receiving any remote therapeutic or remote patient monitoring services from other providers? So at this point in time, that's limited. So it's limited. Uh, So let me just go down uh, that same path with you. I can bill uh, remote physiological monitoring and chronic care management adjacent with each other, but remote therapeutic monitoring with remote patient monitoring is not yet permissible. That's correct. And there's actually a slew of codes that you cannot bill at the same time as you're billing RPM or RTM codes. And that's something that's available in the CPT manual book. It, it actually lists those specific CPT codes that cannot be billed at the same time as an RPM or RTM code. Interesting. So, and currently with uh, RTM, you are allowed to, uh, there are uh, some might refer to them as uh, device supply codes covering the area of monitoring respiratory and muscle skeletal. Did that change in the proposal for 2023 or does it remain the same for those two categories? So there are a lot of stakeholders, you know, both in the comment period last year um, as well as since then have let CMS know that they'd like for the use cases for these RTM services to be expanded beyond those two um, and that they would in fact like a general Um, device supply code at this point in time, CMS has declined to do that in this rulemaking. However, they did add a new ability for a third use case, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And so um, they did not set specific pricing and that's going to be carrier selected. So the Medicare administrative contractors will make the decisions regarding reimbursability and the amount. But yes, CBT has been added, but more general use cases have not. Interesting. So, Nathaniel, help clarify another point with a remote therapeutic monitoring. In remote physiological monitoring, you have to use a medical device, and that data needs to flow 
automatically to the provider, if you will. With remote therapeutic monitoring, a device is suggested but not required. I think uh, TJ even referenced the fact that the data can be manually entered. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would agree with that conclusion that advice is suggested but not required. If you look at the uh, commentary and the proposed rule for RTM, CMS makes very clear that these codes are codependent upon one another. Uh, namely, you cannot bill uh, the professional service uh, without billing the device code and fulfilling the requirements of the device code. And I think uh, it would apply vice versa. So that you couldn't just say, I'm, I'm doing the monitoring, but no professional, um, or I'm doing the professional, but not sufficient monitoring. So I, I, I do believe they are codependent on each other. Okay. So what you're saying is I, I have to use a medical device, but that medical device may not be Bluetooth oriented or uh, cellular oriented, and therefore the data can automatically go to the cloud. And so therefore the patient might have to look at the device and and enter the the data manually as to what the device was measuring is that is that a fair summary so it must be a medical device as defined under the federal food drugs and cosmetics act it cannot merely be a wellness device Um, that was uh, in effect last year and that has not been proposed to be changed similarly what you're referring to is whether the device itself must automatically access and and transmit the the patient uh, the recorded patient data it, uh, like it is for remote physiologic monitoring. Last year, CMS said um, uh, you, the patient can self-report data as part of the non-physiological data for purposes of RTM codes. So you could do that. Whether or not it must be Bluetooth enabled, uh, I'm not sure if they really got into that kind of level of detail, but it can't just be a, a log or a digital version of a journal because the RTM device itself must meet the definition of a medical device, whether it's a SAMD or uh, actual hardware. So yeah, the the biggest difference in that regard is you can also add some of the patients, for example, subjective, how are you feeling that particular day? Uh, Because it's supposed to monitor and track the the therapeutic effect. If if, uh, pollen counts are really high and the patient used uh, her rescue inhaler three times a day. She could also say how she felt and why if that rescue inhaler, for example, was not itself tied to a Bluetooth-enabled device, uh, but some other aspect of the software uh, was a medical device. Yeah, so th- that's that's really where I was coming from, and I appreciate the great clarification. I, I, I know the audience uh, appreciates it based on the uh, type of feedback that I get. Uh, but, you know, so it's it's those types of inputs, right? It's manually entered. It's not it's not based on a, a medical device per se. You know, what's your pain level today is a perfect example. Did you take your medication today? Yes or no, as opposed to using a medical device that does dispensing in the home, if you will. It's just that, you know, these are these are really great points of clarification that providers ask when they look to establish these types of services. So is any any greater clarity that you can give in that in that context? So fundamentally, it must be a medical device. It can't be some sort of low key or wellness or just a, a software um, input station that the vendor RTM company has created. So no ifs, ands, or buts. It, uh, RTM or RPM requires a medical device. But for RTM, that RTM data can be self-reported uh, by the patient as well as digitally up- uploaded, whereas yeah. RPM requires the data 
be physiologic and be automatically digitally uploaded by the device itself. TJ, uh, again, we fall into this trap, if you will. I'll use the word trap. It might be the wrong word, admittedly. A medical device, Fitbit, whether it be a Fitbit or a um, or an Apple Watch, you know, call out both sides of the equation there. They're not necessarily medical devices as as gone through clinical trials and and, and be FDA cleared. But that to me is the ultimate of a of a of a sound medical device, one that's gone through that uh, that rigor. But the the definition of a medical device is much more looser than that. Can you clarify that that point? Sure. Yeah. So if you think about it, and, and the FDA has done this intentionally, the definition of device, and it's really just device under the Federal Drug and Cosmetic Act, but it's in the context of a medical device, is very broadly written. And that's done intentionally, right? Because from the FDA's perspective, it by having it broadly written, it pulls into its purview and jurisdiction of all these things that it can, you know, regulate. And typically, you know, if you are a healthcare provider, uh, if if it's possible, uh, it's usually and if it's you know uh, you know consistent with sound medical practice, typically healthcare organizations want to avoid being pulled into different regulatory schemes, right? It's just it's more burden, more oversight, and if you don't need to be, it's a good thing, right? Here it's a little different because because of the billing requirement, we want to be uh, we being a remote physiologic monitoring, remote therapeutic monitoring organizations, we want to be a medical device because we want our device to satisfy the reimbursement requirements. So it's it's a little bit uh, uh, of the opposite or counterintuitive to what typically you do an analysis to say, look, we have this great new device, but we don't need FDA uh, clearance or approval. We can market this um, here. You know what really healthcare organizations want is to have something that's robust enough to be considered a medical device under the FDA definition. One of the things I get asked the most and in my practice is someone that comes through with this uh, interesting software that they think is is just fantastic and it make you know the patient may upload i felt good today and they say look uh this should count for rtm and and the answer is in most likely it does not because it's it's probably not robust enough to be a medical device and in fact the fda has recognized this in guidance as recently as i think a couple you know a year or two ago there is this concept of what's known as a medical device data system an mdds uh, under fda rules and an mdds um there, there's two types of it well one of the types of medical device data systems is not considered a medical device it's expressly carved out from that and those are things that are just basically you know, portals or, or technological conduits to transmit the information that's being collected into like the final uh, viewer's perspective. So if you had in that example I just gave, you know, upload, you know, if you just basically entered into like a web form, you know, your feelings for the day or uh, your pain levels, that likely is not going to be a, a medical device component of a workflow. You would need something more. You need some sort of, uh, you know, AI or machine learning algorithm. You need some risk stratification, something addition to really qualify for software as a medical device if you're going that route. So, you know, I just, you know, caution your listeners that, uh, we're seeing some of these questions out in the marketplace of, of people who think it's just a really simple uh, add-on for RTM, but you do really need that medical device uh, that had something has, you know, uh, something addressing a clinical need, and, and otherwise you wouldn't satisfy the billing requirements. Very good. I appreciate that. So, uh, Rachel, we've been obviously talking about uh, remote patient monitoring, the 2023 20, um, proposed uh, physician fee schedule. Is there anything that we missed in the context of call outs as to what 
CMS is uh, ultimately trying to do with the proposed changes in RTM? I would say one of the most important things is something that Nate touched on a little bit earlier in our discussion, which is that um, the use cases, and this is probably the most significant change as well, the use cases for RTM, if this rule is finalized, would be significantly expanded, making it much easier um, for a number of different providers to use. First of all, on the physician and non-physician practitioner side, it would allow for those individuals to provide the services um, as care management codes, which only requires uh, general supervision to be billed incident two, as opposed to direct supervision, which is currently re required. And so the the use cases, which were much more limited before, will now be expanded. The second thing is that it creates, you know, a separate set of codes for other qualified, non-physician qualified healthcare professionals, such as, as TJ mentioned, you know, potentially clinical psychologists, physical therapists are among them. Um, and with respect to those codes, while at first blush, because incident two does not apply to those types of providers, it may seem like the use cases for those codes continues to be limited. But um, with respect to whom else might be able to assist those providers in providing the codes, you have to look to, in the same way you look to the roles for physicians and non-physician practitioners and that incident two rule that would apply, you would look to similar roles for, let's say, a physical therapist and under physical therapy rules um, for any therapy codes, which, which these could be considered, and CMS has said that, as sometimes therapy codes, um, that they would be able to utilize, for instance, physical therapy assistance and occupational therapy assistance, um, although they'd be subject to a potential price reduction for doing so under what's called the de minimis rule. But overall, I would say the biggest change is, and the most important one in terms of your listeners would be the the increased use cases, both in terms of the ability to do things under general supervision, as well as the addition of that CBT code that we discussed. Awesome. Uh, Nathaniel, I'm going to give you a heads up that I, uh, I changed my mind as to when we're going to insert where uh, our listeners can find additional input, because the three of you have uh, written this article, Remote Therapeutic Monitoring, What Do You Need to Know About CMS Proposed Changes? Where can they find this article and other related content that that your organization produces? Sure. They can find uh, all of our blogs. We have hundreds of blogs on telemedicine, digital health specifically, uh, their law or business changes. At our blog, healthcarelawtoday.com. That's healthcarelawtoday.com. And it's all free and includes uh, full answers, not just a teaser, and uh, links to the primary sources. So it's really designed to be a publicly available resource library for clients and non-clients alike. The other place I would recommend uh, your listeners go is foley.com slash telemedicine. That's our team page. They'll see the bench of all of our lawyers, a multitude of our speaking events, past and uh, upcoming, representative projects and matters, and they'll probably learn a lot about it. So that's foley.com slash telemedicine. Awesome. And I, uh, and my personal opinion is that uh, foley.com and the three of you are de facto standards. And if it wasn't written by you guys, then I'd, uh, I'd find what you guys written wrote before I made any uh, decisions moving forward, because I do uh, consider you guys, not just because I'm a Foley, I'm not related, but I'm just saying the, the Foley's are pretty smart. The, the other reason why I noted the resource now versus the end as we talked is that it's, it's key for the listeners that if you have questions, 
certainly go to the to the website uh, that was referenced and read their article. But there's a link in that article where you can actually submit your opinions or further questions to CMS for greater uh, to see whether or not if there's something more that you want in the proposed rule, something that you don't like in the proposed rule. Submit your opinions uh, so that you, your voice can be heard in that manner. So uh, very critical. We, we have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to touch on a related point uh, relative to the overall uh, proposed rule in and of itself. They talk a lot about ACOs, and I, I love the fact that they're talking about ACOs, but I also come back to I'm really just trying to establish value, right? And most physicians are challenged with how do I get the value, right? I'm stuck in this episodic care model. I need to get the value because my payers are all asking me to take on risk. But and then and then there's these uh, proposed rules around ACOs. But I'm thinking out loud in that if I'm a provider and I am able to provide extend my services through telehealth, which in my view is more video type services and and remote examination services, and then you have remote patient monitoring. Then you also have remote therapeutic monitoring and you have chronic care management and some deviations around chronic care management. That in and of itself, in my opinion, kind of helps a provider and independent practice change their overall delivery of care model without taking on any risk. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on what where CMS continues to go down the uh, ACO rule, what I'm not opposed to, I, I, I do think it has value, but I, just relative to how does an independent provider get there and do they need to always take on risk to create value? Any thoughts from any one of the three of us? So generally speaking, the notion about what we call, whether you're going to talk about it as an ACO or value-based care, the idea is ultimately you are taking on risk. It's kind of similar to ACOs are a bit different, but it's it's the notion is very similar to what we call capitated payments in a managed care context, where I'm only going to get so many dollars, how am I going to spend them throughout the year, and is there going to be anything left over at the end? Um, what I would say is, is quite important with respect to the conversation that we're having now, and I've actually discussed this quite a few times, um, even in the last week with clients, is how in particular remote therapeutic monitoring may be a tool by which they are able to create value under ACO programs and otherwise, um, including under managed care programs for their patients. For instance, if a physical therapist is using remote therapeutic monitoring as a tool for, let's say, home exercise programs, um, that, you know, we expect to show that we'll have patients more engaged in their therapy, doing their therapy more often, having the physical therapist more aware of when they are and aren't doing their therapy and how they're doing it, Um, which will ultimately lead to better results, healthier patients, less need for continued physical therapy. So I would say any, just about any type of digital healthcare is a a wonderful tool for any provider that is choosing to take on risk um, through value-based care, including through ACOs. Another thing that ACOs have really targeted in this rulemaking and otherwise, including the new ACO REACH program, is equity in healthcare. Um, and making sure that those that everyone has access to healthcare. And I would say that another way that digital healthcare, including RTM and RPM, are very aligned with this notion of value-based care 
is that um, they can be available to patients that might otherwise have more challenges reaching the traditional healthcare system. So I see these things as being very aligned with ACOs uh, and the you know incredible uh, improvements and changes that are being made with ACOs going forward. We're going to have to uh, leave it there. TJ Ferrante, Rachel Goodman, Nathaniel Lackman from Foley and Laudner. Uh, I definitely appreciate your time and your great insights. And I can't encourage our listeners more to go to the reference sites that Nathan had referenced to get the uh, material that you might be looking for as you look to adopt virtual care type services. So uh, with that, I'll leave to you guys any last word from any one of you. Uh, thanks for having us on the show, Tom, and we, we appreciate it. And uh, again, if anyone, anyone has any questions, we're always happy to talk shop. And, uh, you know, we're, we're biased in the sense that we're big proponents of the industry. You know, we like uh, to see this innovation and uh, we hope to continue seeing that. The last thing I'll say is, and you had mentioned this earlier, for this physician fee schedule, there are they are open to public comments for the next 60 or so days. So they're required by law to read every comment. So please go ahead and uh, our blog gives you instructions on how to do that. But if you want to see a change made in this reimbursement policy, your voice can be heard by going there and, and letting CMS know. Yeah, so, I think that uh, it, it's really exciting in, uh, to see how CMS is responding quite rapidly to changes that the industry has requested. R, RTM is a concrete example. And there are folks out there who think RTM is the new hotness and whatnot, but I would uh, urge them to examine and embrace it, but be really diligent and careful uh, when you're building out your business models on these supervisions, exactly who is doing the supervising, billing, and fulfilling these technical elements, because uh your claims volume can really build up, and if you're taking shortcuts, you could get hit with a significant post-payment over payment demand that occurs two or three years from now. That's a great point. That's a great point. All right, very good. I will leave it there. Thanks again. Uh, this is the virtual shift, Tom Foley, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Have a great day. Thank you for having us. Thanks. You too. I want to thank the show's sponsors, HP. HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at FoleyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next show.